2: Hello and welcome to All Things Policy. This is our last episode of 2020. Uh, We'll be back on Monday, the 4th of January. Uh, Now, the normal convention with one of these end-of-the-year episodes is to do a sort of retrospective of the year that went by. But frankly, you know what dominated this last year and you've probably had enough of it. So today, instead of doing that sort of retrospective, I'm joined by Anirudh. And we're going to do that thing we do, you know, where we go back into the past, often into the deep past, and see if that tells us anything about our times. And uh, today, uh, we sort of want to go back to the very beginning, very beginning of what we call civilization. I'm going to get Anirudh to talk to us about ancient Mesopotamia, uh, the land between the two rivers, uh, where which is often called the cradle of civilization. And I want to see what that civilization uh tells us about ourselves and also what we owe to that civilization because, uh, you know, it's, it's amazing how much of our everyday lives, how little things that we don't realize are actually directly connected to ideas uh, that were formed uh, in what is today Iraq several thousand years back. So, Anirudh, I, I want to first, I want you to give us an overview of ancient Mesopotamia. But
0: before we get there, I, I, I'll ask the basic question that, uh, you know, journalists ask, why should we care? Thank you for asking me the question that every historian hates, Aditya. Uh, so let me first try and tell you a little bit. I I, I don't necessarily agree with the idea that you know something's got to have an immediate application to the present day uh, for us to be able to talk about it. Um, But at least in Mesopotamia's case, it does have that immediate application to the present day um, because there are so many parallels to the way that urban cultures and civilizations and religions and societies all across the world emerge. You know, in a lot of ways, Mesopotamia is really um, that lab where all this experimentation related to civilization happens. uh, And once humanity kind of figures it out there, we see the same pattern repeated again and again in, for example, in Persia, in Greece, uh, in Rome, uh, and from there to all the most famous nation states of today. But One thing that I personally find all the more fascinating about Mesopotamia is because of its parallels to India, uh, and particularly India and in the quote-unquote late Vedic period, um, so roughly from about the 9th century BC to about the 5th, 6th century BC, uh, where you see a number of small kingdoms starting to emerge in the Gangetic Valley, uh, and then the gradual emergence of one single empire, and how that uh, initial kind of political and religious experimentation that you see in the early centuries uh, becomes the foundation of this civilization that seems to outlast all these invasions that come into that land even after. You see the exact same kind of pattern happening in Mesopotamia. Um, So I kind of feel like talking about Mesopotamia and trying to uh, uncover these parallels, um, tells us a little bit about um, India as well. And and I kind of feel like that perspective, that retrospective perspective, as it were, um, would be an an interesting note for us to end the year on. Yeah, absolutely. I I
2: think I I agree with you completely there. Uh, uh, You know, history doesn't always have to have uh, direct applications. But in the case of Mesopotamia, it's fairly evident. Uh, Can you just tell us about how civilization... Arose uh, in Mesopotamia. And
0: what are the theories for why it arose there? So, you and I have had a few debates about this. Like, we talked about it in our um, conversation about uh, how ancient Egypt and modern totalitarianism are, are related. Um, so yeah. there's a whole bunch of different theories, right? So um, you have uh, so you have this chap James Scott, um, whose basic argument is that the state originates because um, because there's a need for warfare, and so you have these elites who kind of set up a mechanism to extract surplus, um, and therefore use that surplus to go to war, and how that is basically this this urge towards political control is what leads to the emergence of of urban and settled populations. The book that I've recently been reading is called uh, Babylon, Mesopotamia and the Birth of Civilization uh, by this chap called uh, Paul Krivacek. I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Um, But he provides an interesting alternative and he uh, does that by focusing on what might be uh, the oldest known city, at least in the archaeological record. This is a city, not not a town uh, like, for example, Katal Huyuk in in Turkey. Uh, This is an actual city. Its name is Eridu. um, And it's in the southernmost part uh, of modern-day Iraq. It's not too far from Basra, which is this town that's on the Indian Ocean. Um, And Eridu was basically uh, this pretty desolate place back in the day. It was situated uh, in the midst of these really salty marshes um, next to this gigantic um, pure freshwater lake. Uh, and it appears that uh, this was one of those uh, frontier zones that are so often talked about in history where you have uh, different kinds of people who are kind of interacting there, right? So you would have had these, uh, they would have had a, you would have had a small uh, fishing settlement for example that would live by the shores of the lake and you'd also have these um, pastoralists, these these nomadic uh, sheep and goat herding people uh, who'd also be kind of wandering around and every now and then uh, seasonally perhaps interacting with the people who are living by the lake um, and it seems that through through the interaction of these two peoples, there were perhaps uh, seasonal festivals related to celebrating the rites of this god of of this of this uh, of this uh, freshwater lake. And this god is a very interesting chap. Today he is known as Enki, or at least in in, the, in, in Mesopotamia's Hede, he was known as Enki. But we kind of recognize his iconography because uh, he's a creature with the upper half of a goat and the lower half of a fish, um, also known as Capricorn. And uh, why Capricorn? Because um, from where these ancient fish eating and, and goat herding people were living, if you look directly south, you see the sun in Capricorn towards like the later half of the year, which is perhaps when they would have had these festivals. And perhaps the form of this God having being half goat, half fish, reflects the fact that it's, it originates from the interaction of these two communities. So what these communities do is because they're living in this, in this relatively hostile place that isn't suitable for like large populations, is as they gradually start to interact more and more they start to settle down uh, their population starts to grow and they figure out the need for some sort of collective action uh, in order to uh, harness the waters of the rivers of mesopotamia in order to ensure that they're able to uh, farm enough food for them all to live and according to uh, paul krivacek um, this is really where civilization originates is because there's a need for a collective action and as a result of that, you start to see technology being implemented that's capable of supporting larger and larger populations.
2: That's interesting.
0: Uh,
2: and what uh, what sort of political authority exists in these civilizations? I mean, obviously they are kings, but how does uh, how how do these kings uh, you know come to dominate, and how do they how do they legitimate their existence as kings? And, you know, is it? Do they say that they are of divine origin, that they have a, a, a special hotline to God? What is it that makes them uh, legitimate rulers?
0: Now, here's a really interesting thing, Aditya, and that is that as, at least in the early centuries, uh, when urbanized, when cities are just starting to kick off um, in, in, um, in Mesopotamia, unlike in Egypt, you don't seem to see kings. Um, especially if you look at the city of Ur, Uh, which again was one of those very early cities and was uh, basically not too far away even from Eridu. And we seem to have taken a lot of inspiration from Eridu. Um, We see no sign of palaces, for example. You don't even see signs of um, mansions. Um, Everybody seemed to be on a relatively equal plane, um, except, of course, for priests. Um, So there was this uh, really fascinating goddess in Ur. Her name was Ishtar. Um, And she has some kind of parallels to um, the Hindu goddess Durga uh, in the sense that she's very much like a goddess of adrenaline. Um, She is associated with, as the author puts, uh, fighting and... Um, so she's not exactly the, necessarily the same as Durga. Um, so in, in some senses, in some Durga legends, for example, um, the fact that Durga is this absolute virago, this uh, indomitable woman, uh, whose, whose energy, her shakti, her sexual energy is far more powerful than that of the male gods, is, is, is touched upon in some uh, in some Puranic versions of her myth. Uh, but let me not get into that. Let me just come back to Ishtar. Um, so as far as Ishtar is concerned, so the city of Ur is really dominated um, by Ishtar's temple. Um, And you have uh, essentially a priest bureaucracy uh, that are the most important people in the city. Um, and these chaps are basically directing the rest of the city. So you also have um, be- people who are basically doing farming and goat herding and all the other activities, maintaining canals and all that. Uh, but all of that seems to be in the service of the goddess. Um, in a lot of ways, if you look at the gods of like early Mesopotamia, uh, they're worshipped as gods of civilization, um, particularly this Enki of Eridu that I was referring to earlier. Um, he's, he's described as the lord of the Meh. Uh, And this this meh is this uh, concept that we really have no equivalent for in modern English. Um, It it really represents all the arts of civilization, as we might call it. Um, So a quality of meh would uh, would, uh, signify that you're literate. It would signify that you know how to do agriculture. It would signify that you know how to go to war uh, using organized bands. Uh, It would signify all these ideas of bureaucracy and civilization and religion um, that would have been totally new to, uh, for example, Neolithic hunter-gatherers Uh, but were considered to be so new and so unique by the Mesopotamians uh, that they not only gave them a different concept uh, but also associated them with divinity. Uh, so really in the early stages of Mesopotamia, what you see um, is not necessarily this very hierarchical society directed by these warlords, uh, but rather people who are aware that what they're doing is very new compared to what all humans have been doing before, uh, and who therefore associate uh, this newness with divine inspiration. And I just find that so absolutely fascinating uh, because of its parallels to the Indus Valley. I mean, um, as far as we know from archaeological evidence, uh, we don't see a lot of evidence for like extreme social stratification uh, in Indus Valley cities. And as far as we know, the Indus people also considered themselves uh, to be very new. There was a clear sense that this urban culture was different from everything that came before. Uh, it really makes me think about uh, what we might, what parallels we might see if we kind of uh, do more excavations in the Indus Valley. Uh, we know very, very little about Indus religion. We haven't discovered temples that are similar to anything that we see in Mesopotamia, uh, at least in the early periods. And so you really have to think. What, in Egypt, we know that the driving force of urbanization uh, was, to a great extent, wars between uh, various warlords. We know in Mesopotamia it was, uh, it was this priest bureaucracy, as it were, uh, was something similar happening in the indus civilization and another really fascinating parallel between indus uh, between the indus culture and mesopotamia is that um, after the emergence of ur as as a great kind of urban center all across mesopotamia in fact as far away as syria and turkey uh, you start to see cities that are kind of modeling themselves on ur the the city plan is similar to that of ur Uh, even the size of the brick that they use is similar to that of ur now why is that the older theory was that it was because Ur was going and conquering, but we know from modern archaeological uh, evidence that they had nowhere near the kind of army that would have been needed for that kind of thing. Uh, So it seems to have been more like a a religious, cultural, and economical model, a brand, as uh, Paul Krivacek calls it, Uh, and this Ur brand was being adopted by all the other emerging towns and cities of Mesopotamia at that time. And once again, there's this interesting parallel to the Indus civilization, right? Because one of the greatest enigmas of the Indus civilization Civilization is that you have this uh, remarkable conformity uh, to this model of city planning where you see this kind of uh, large crossroads dividing up the city, uh, these beautiful right-angled roads. Um, you have uh, systems of sewage. You have standard size of bricks that appear in this wide swathe of territory, like hundreds of kilometers across, you know, without a kind of very sophisticated transport and communication system. Uh, there have been no way for an empire to kind of standardize to that extent across this vast expanse. Um, and arguably, the Indus inter- Civilization its peak was even larger and more populous than Mesopotamia was. Um, so, was it the case that, similar to Mesopotamia, uh, you saw the origin of of of, of urbanism uh, in some minor city somewhere that we don't really know, and this idea of civilization kind of spread from there uh, and became this fad that people all across this river valley began to adopt? And we also know from the Indus from the course of the Indus River today and from various archaeological evidence that the people of the Indus civilizations also did a lot of collective action. Uh, In terms of building canals, there must have been some kind of bureaucracy that decided what was being cultivated, uh, where the water was going, who was going to be responsible for, you know, cleaning up the canals, stuff like that. Um, So it's a very interesting lens through which to think about uh, the origins of uh, urbanism um, in the Indian subcontinent as well.
2: You know, it fascinates me no end to think about a time when civilization and its trappings were relatively new. I know the the word civilization is is, is now loaded, but I'll use it as a shorthand here. One of the big debates uh, that we have about, uh, you know, origins of civilization and their evolutions is, you know, was it diffusion or was it some sort of, uh, you know, indigenous innovation? Over here, there does seem to be a bit of both uh, going on. How did these civilizations now interact with each other? Uh, Did they see themselves? Do we have any evidence that they saw themselves as being different from each other? Uh, Did they have, you know,
0: distinct identities? Uh, Did they find connections with each other in some ways? Yeah, definitely. So uh, it doesn't really take long, given the way that humans are for for this organized bureaucracy, this priest bureaucracy of order to kind of fall apart. And it seems to have happened because of some kind of Uprising because the system simply wasn't working anymore, and from that point, you see this um, explosion of like new ways of governing that seem to happen all across Mesopotamia. You have to keep in mind that even though Mesopotamia is fertile because there's two rivers and all of that, the reason why it is that fertile is because you had these systems of canal that were able canals that were able to harness these rivers. Uh, the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers uh, are extremely erratic. Uh, it's not like the Nile, which we talked about again in our Egypt episode. Uh, in the you have these very regular sort of kind of rhythms, you know, you have this flood season, then you have the dry season. And it's, it's a very orderly kind of society that can emerge around that. But the Tigris and the Euphrates are very erratic. At some points in the year, they will just like explode their banks and like rise to the height of a four of a freaking four story building. And uh, it, it's, a, it's a much more chaotic sense of nature that these Mesopotamians seem to have. So they, they start to have these gods all identified with various aspects of nature. Ishtar, as I said, is this adrenaline goddess, uh, but you also have gods such as Enlil, for example. Enlil, uh, who basically corresponds to the atmosphere. So it's it's, it's kind of funny you think of uh, an atmosphere god or, you know, lord atmosphere. Um, and there, there were a whole bunch of like different cities, all of whom had their different patron god, and all of whom were fighting desperately with each other for control of water resources. And as a result of this, of this kind of fighting that erupts between these cities after the early this period, you start to see the emergence of kingdoms, uh, which you alluded to in your last question, Aditya. So um, that's when that's when it really starts to become something that is much more familiar to us, you know, the much more familiar model of civilization where you have uh, these military men, uh, these big men, uh, who basically through, bec- through being war leaders for their societies, um, eventually emerge into the status of full-blown kingship. And you see this very fascinating period roughly around the just leading up to the 20, 2700, 2500 BC time frame or so, uh, when all of these cities was going to war like like cats and dogs. There's, there's a very famous conflict between the cities of Umma and Lagash, for example, uh, who literally fight a war with each other that lasts a hundred years, uh, which is absolutely insane. And like, through all this period, right, so these aristocracies are trying to uh, justify their existence by kind of saying that, look, the other people are so dangerous, if we don't fight them, then they're going to kill us. And that, again, is is a parallel to the way that uh, modern politicians uh, argue, which is, you know, if you don't give us authority, if you don't give us military power, if you don't uh, sacrifice your sons and daughters to us, then the enemies are going to come and kill you. But at the same time, uh, you also see uh, towards the end of this period, the, uh, the emergence of this idea of, of legitimate and just kingship. Indian uh, political theorists would call it Rajadharma, where you start to see these aristocrats, these kings, trying to claim legitimacy by saying, you know, we provided justice. Um, we we took care of widows, we took care of orphans, uh, we ensured that everybody was properly fed, therefore we deserve your support. And that again is so interesting because like I said, Mesopotamia is very much this lab of civilization, right? So in this early period, you see a kind of a sacred site and religion-led urbanization. Then you see this military aristocracy-led legitimization. And then finally you see the emergence of uh, what we might call a social contract even. That is
2: so interesting. Uh, So, you know, you you do eventually see the rise of, uh, you know, polities that involve some sort of royalty, uh, perhaps palace cultures. Uh, You know, moving east, what parallels do we see uh, between the evolution of civilization in Mesopotamia and beyond and uh, the evolution of civilization in India? Not
0: just with the Indus civilization, but uh, what comes much later. Uh Aha. So here's the thing, right? So there's this modern tendency to think of like, um, if something happened earlier, then it must be first and everything else that comes afterwards is pale offshoots of it and aren't relevant at all. I think that's kind of nonsense because as we know, eventually the the Indus Valley civilization, uh, which was this enormous like urban juggernaut of the Bronze Age, of which, as I said, we know very little, eventually collapsed. Um, I'm not going to get into the reasoning behind why it collapsed and all that, because we really don't have time for that right now. Um, but eventually the, the remnants of the Indus civilization, um, as well as this new culture, uh, who call themselves the Indo-Aryans, um, start to kind of intermingle um, and they start to move further east, right? So they start to move into the Gangetic Valley. And once again, in the Gangetic Valley, you start to see urbanizing forces at play. And as far as these, the people of the Gangetic Valley were concerned, right, they may have they may have had some distant memories of being part of an urban Urban culture. Uh, But for all extents and purposes, urbanism, cities, civilizations um, are all essentially reinvented um, between the Ganga and Yamuna rivers and like going further down, uh, all the way down to uh, Bihar. uh, which which we which was at the time called Magadha, right? So what you see uh, over the course of roughly the tenth, ninth, eighth centuries bc is in in the Gangetic valley you see a lot of new cities emerging, and once again in these cities the the parallels to Mesopotamia are so extraordinary and so striking. Um, where you see the emergence of yaksha worship, for example, uh, yakshas are these forces of nature uh, who are worshipped in altars. There would have been a statue for yaksha. Um, each city would have had its own kind of yaksha or multiple yakshas associated with it uh, who are worshipped. Um, and at the same time, of course, you had uh, another thread of religion from the Indo Aryans who who kind of preferred this more non-iconic, sacrificial kind of culture. And um, you again see the emergence of cities, you see the emergence of these military aristocracies who are all going to war with each other. Um, and they, they, I, we can imagine that they probably used very similar uh, reasoning to kind of justify their wars against each other. They would probably have also have had uh, similar bureaucracies, uh, similar forms of collective action as what we saw in Mesopotamia to build canals and maintain um, irrigation and so on. Though, of course, the fact that the Ganga and Yamuna are perennial rivers and nowhere near as chaotic as the Tigris and Euphrates must have had some some kind of effect on that we really need more archaeological evidence to really tell for sure the issue very often when it comes to this period in India is that uh, we tend to give all our attention just to uh, the philosophical developments of the time and like there's no denying the Upanishads and like other texts are like truly remarkable um by by any by any measure but I kind of feel like that takes away the focus from all the other interesting stuff that was going on of which the Upanishads are just really a tiny part um, and once again to clarify I'm not saying that um the Mesopotamia was the reason why India urbanized in that way. Um, It's much more likely that the Indus Valley was the reason why India urbanized in that way. But until we know what happened in the Indus Valley period, we will not know precisely what the vectors of that influence might have been. Um, But it is interesting to see the parallels between this very, very distant and well-understood culture like the Mesopotamians and the stuff that happened in the Gangetic Valley because I kind of feel like it it speaks to something uh, that's very fundamental to the human experience of civilization. Is that when you have larger populations um, and you need cities to house them uh, and you need bureaucracies to feed the cities and you need uh, political leadership to uh, defend your city from other other enemy cities, um, you see the same kind of patterns. You see the same uh, religious ideas kind of emerging, the same kind of nature deities. And of course, in India as well, uh, we see uh, a similar concept of a social contract, the responsibility of a king uh, to his citizens. Uh, but we'll come to that in a little bit. Yeah, Anit, you did talk about how there's a lot
2: more going on, you know, beyond these remarkable texts. And one, you know, common assumption is that uh, there's basically endless warfare, uh, especially among these, you know, fairly small states that have fairly limited capacity to wage war, that the warfare is endemic did states have the capacity to conduct uh, relations with uh, other other states, other kingdoms uh, in different ways? And, uh, you know, we do talk often about Sargon of Akkad. Uh, where does, you know, how does uh, an example like his uh, fit into not just the history of uh, the Middle East, but also what does it tell us about uh,
0: India? So Sargon is one of those most, uh, one of those really fascinating historical figures uh, because he is the founder of what is known as the, the first Akkadian Empire. Um, and I was talking a little bit little bit earlier about how all these um, military chiefs in charge of all the Sumerian and Mesopotamian city-states are all just going to war with each other. So as you can imagine, these guys just keep on fighting until uh, there, there eventually emerges uh, this guy who, who defeats many of the kings of many of the cities, uh, slaughters them all um, and then takes over the city called Kish. And... When he takes over, Kish, he is murdered uh, as a result of a kind of court conspiracy, uh, and this chap called Sargon emerges onto the scene. And Sargon, what he does is that he wields to he welds together all these diverse babbling city states um, into a, a single empire, you know. And and it's it's the one of the earliest known empires, and it's also one of the most remarkable because now think about this. So up till this point, all of these. People, all these military men who have been ruling over the city states were like, look, it's a question of us versus them, you know, Uh, if you don't protect me, uh, if if you don't, if you don't give me authority, I can't protect us from all of our enemies. Um, And now what Sargon does is he, for the very first time, tries to create a new imperial identity, which transcends just one city, uh, but instead looks to a broader imperial culture and tries to make himself a man, not just of uh, of Kishites, for Kishites, but instead a man of all Mesopotamians, Um, the first real emperor in that sense, you know, Um, and really think about what an extraordinary innovation that is for the times. We talked about the origins of civilization from the interactions of just these tiny little fishing and nomadic, um, you know, goat herding communities who are building their small cities, organizing collective action, worshipping their own gods fighting with the gods of others. Um, And from that you have a sudden leap to this man who says, I'm a king of all these cities, and I'm a king of all these gods and I'm related to all these gods. Um, and he does that in some really amazing ways. He, uh, for example, appoints his daughter to be the chief priestess of, of the moon goddess um, in Ur. Um, and this lady uh, writes some really extraordinary poetry praising the moon goddess. She, and she also, most importantly, seems to be coming up with these uh, new public rituals where the royal family of Akkad is integral to worshipping and respecting all the gods in all the cities. Now, what is the parallel uh, to India? You might ask. Um, well, think about Magadha, for example, right? Um, so, over the course of many centuries, you have like all these different uh, just city-states, come polities, just going to war with each other, right? So, you have uh, you know Kosala, you have uh, Vriji, you have Kashi, you have Magadha, you have Anga, you have the Mallas, uh, you have Vatsa, Chedi, all, all these guys. All of them are just going to war like cats and dogs. Um, but eventually, uh, because of like a certain set of geopolitical factors, uh, one region emerges as dominant and that region is Magadha. Um, and the reason why Magadha rises to dominance is because Magadha has access to um, the Nagpur Plateau from which they're able to extract iron ore and also extract elephants. Um, and they basically use this tactical innovation uh, to overpower gradually. Uh, in, 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 in quick succession, they start to overpower um, all the other city-states. And at the same time, uh, we were talking a little bit earlier about yakshas and how each city would have had its own yaksha and all that. Um, You also see the emergence of these universalizing religions in India. Uh, You see the emergence of Buddhism and Jainism, for example. And I don't think it's a coincidence that in the earliest Buddhist legends, these makers of imperial Magadha, specifically Bimbisar and Ajatashatru, like feature so often. uh, Because my theory is that these kings understood very well uh, the kind of potential that these religions would have had uh, for justifying and like kind of elevating their authority to more than purely purely a local level. So just like Akkad did, so you have this city called Kish where Sargon of Akkad comes from. Um, Kish uh, was able to rise to geopolitical dominance because um, it's located close to the passes uh, that are located at the very edge of Mesopotamia, right? So these guys were constantly fighting off nomads and so on. So they built up the military power to beat off the nomads first uh, and then eventually used that military power to beat all the other Mesopotamian states. Uh, Similarly, Magadha which is basically in the hot seat uh, of kind of dominance or the Gangetic Plateau, uh, sorry, the Gangetic Valley um, learns how to fight wars uh, and eventually kind of takes over all the other city-states. And then also also, um, you have these remarkable men like, for example, Chandragupta Maurya who come in and who kind of um, try to elevate this, this tiny little state of Magadha into a truly imperial power. Uh, and once again, the, the parallels to um, Mesopotamia are so, so fascinating. So the Akkadians, for example, uh, they build up this um, this system uh, of bureaucracy and of, and of travel checkpoints uh, between all the areas of their far-flung empire. All of us in school would have learned, for example, that Ashoka Maurya uh, and Chandragupta Gupta Maurya uh, built rest houses uh, and they built like, you know, mango trees. They planted them across the highways and all that. But think about why these guys are actually doing it. It's in order to make sure that they can very easily maintain communication with very, very uh, distant empires. And just as in Mesopotamia, uh, because you have these organized like city level models of collective action to control the rivers, for example, which kind of transition naturally into imperial bureaucracy, you see the exact same thing happening in India. Um, There would have been some form of uh, military and agricultural bureaucracy uh, that gradually becomes more and more sophisticated. And especially if you look at the earliest layers of the tech of arguably the most famous uh, indian text and the text that gets me into the most trouble on all things policy uh, the arthashastra the arthashastra very clearly shows you that india at the at, at this very early period um, especially the state of magadha had these extraordinary bureaucracies uh, which you see, this we see these fascinating parallels to, um in Mesopotamia as well. Uh, and you have to think, how were these bureaucracies invented? You would have had to have had specialists in mining, uh, specialists in um, in warfare, specialists in tactics, specialists in logistics, specialists in agriculture, um, specialists in horse rearing and cow rearing, uh, specialists in like uh, welding together all these different kind of economic models of all these different polities, who are sitting and having these arguments and kind of like fleshing out like a system that can work across an entire empire and then actually going and doing it for the first time um and in the process right creating uh, arguably one of the largest and most important uh, economic and cultural formations uh, of their respective times so just as the Akkadian Empire uh, serves as the model for all the Mesopotamian empires that, that come afterwards, uh, for example, the Neo-Sumerian and the Assyrian empires, um, similarly, the Magadhan Empire uh, remains the model, if not in terms of organization, then uh, definitely in terms of like economics and definitely um, as a result of the kind of culture that helps create by integrating the Gangetic Valley, uh, it serves as the inspiration for all the Indian politics that come afterwards. That is a, such a, a magnificent and such a strange parallel across so many centuries and such different cultures. Um, and there's, there's another point that I forgot to mention. Um, Ashoka Maharia, right, the one arguably one of the most like um, important Indian figures, he does something very similar to Sargon of Akkad. Uh, so just as I talked about Sargon of Akkad, uh, how his daughter uh, went and like, you know, helped create this new kind of uh, culture which shows the Akkadian royal dynasty as part um, and parcel of, kind of the sacred lives of all these peoples, uh, Ashoka does the exact same bloody thing. Uh, he goes and sets up these pillars and edicts in pre-existing holy sites, uh, therefore, trying to associate his own personal identity um, with all these sacred centers and therefore to build for the first time uh, this really pan-gangetic or pan-subcontinental identity. Uh, Now, at least the pan-subcontinental thing fails, uh, but it it kind of works in the gangetic area. Um, But think about what is fundamentally happening here, the mechanism and just how unique and just how new it is. Um, And it's just so ridiculous and so strange to me um, that... We have to examine India from the lens of a better archaeologically understood uh, culture in order to realize these fascinating innovations uh, that unfold in early India as well.
2: You know, Anirudh, drawing a comparison between Sargon of Akkad and uh, Magadha or Ashoka Mone would simply never have occurred to me. So thank you for (laughs) that. And this has been a really uh, fascinating uh, tour, uh, not just through ancient Iraq and the ancient Middle East, but also... uh, India. What seems to be clear is that, uh, you know, there are some some parallels between how uh, civilizations grow in different regions, the way in which, you know, polities function, rulers function, what gives them power. It's really interesting to see how uh, the ideas around all of these things evolve. Thank you so much for this, Anirudh. I will just remind our listeners, you know, at the most direct, most basic level, uh, the way we arrange our weeks into seven days, uh, the way we Divide a circle into uh, 360 parts. Uh, uh, you know, our, our our days into 24 hours and 60 minutes and 60 seconds. All of them have uh, roots back in ancient Mesopotamia. Uh, so you know, it does, like I said at the very beginning of this episode, uh, affect our lives in very fundamental ways. But you know, they aren't just about how we divide our time. They're also about how we think about civilization itself, how we organize ourselves. Uh, the shadow of the past. Is, is something that we only grow, grow aware of
0: uh, with time. I also think that there's, um, there's a broader point to be made about the way that we think of ourselves as the inheritors of a past. Um, there is no concept of a perfectly pure and original past. Uh, there simply cannot be. Uh, this idea of the modern nation state as defined by whatever arbitrary political or religious or ethnic identity um, was not something that our ancestors necessarily subscribed to. Um, If you look at the buildings that uh, the Mauryas made in some of their most important sites, for example, uh, if you look at their pillars, there seem to be some hints of Greek and Persian influence. Um, And as far as the Mauryans were concerned, the fact that they were taking um, lessons, aesthetic or for for all that we know, perhaps even military, bureaucratic, political lessons from all these other contemporary empires in no way lessened their appeal and no way uh, lessened their sense of themselves as being um, the original uh, and, and the first and the newest and the most innovative Indian empire that ever existed. And the same applies for uh, many, many other periods. Um, You can look at the Chalukyas in the Deccan, for example. These guys would use North Indian deities like Varaha to kind of justify uh, their their own political iconography. Like Michael Willis has written about this, if our our listeners are interested. Um, And and similarly, if you look at the paintings of the Mughal Emperor Jahangir, for example, in some of his paintings, um, you'll see uh, European cherubs, uh, which again are meant to clearly display him as this kind of a world-facing monarch. And of course, the example that I always keep coming back to is uh, the Deccan Emperor Govinda III, uh, who in his gold coins shows himself riding a horse and has the term uh, invincible written on, uh, written on top of him uh, in a kind of Arabic script uh, because he was importing horses from the Arabs. So really think about what civilization really means. You have these... Um, you do have indigenous ideas indigenous evolutions of course um, but our ancestors never um, saw themselves as being any way inferior to all the other cultures they are in contact with uh, and taking elements from Uh, and it is so strange today uh, that in a world that is arguably more globalized more culturally interconnected than has ever been um, we are all the more obsessed with trying to find this pure and original and traditional past which in many ways uh, is a figment of imagination that kind of distracts us from the incredible uh, grandeur and innovation and complexity uh, of the many, many generations who bequeathed to us uh, the world that we live in today.
2: You know, one of these days I might get into trouble by talking about how I think the Macedonians learned from the Achaemenid Persians and that the Romans in turn learned from the Macedonians uh, about uh, political structures. Uh, But let's hope there aren't any any Slavs listening to our podcast.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So let me
2: just end by saying I hope... uh, this uh, gives our listeners an opportunity to think about longer time cycles in this time of uh, you know fairly catastrophic disruption of our everyday lives. It is useful I think to look back at the long period of history. Uh, Thank you so much Anirudh. Uh, Once again I will repeat that this is our last episode of 2020. We'll be back on the 4th of January, Monday. Happy holidays to all of you and we'll see you in the new year.
0: Happy holidays and happy new year.
1: Please consider signing up for Takshashila's courses. Applications are now open and you can apply at www.takshashila.org.in slash courses. If you liked our show, don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network. You can tune into them on the IVM podcast app, ivmpodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow IVM on social media. The handle is at IVM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And hey, if you'd like to dive into Takshashila's research on technology, strategy and economic affairs, check us out at our Twitter handle at takshashilainst or our website takshashila.org.in.